Hello, everybody, and welcome to Feeling Seen, the podcast that talks about the movies that make us feel seen. In this episode, we're going to look at 2015's Dope, the tremendous film, through the eyes of my co-host for today, Ifiwadi Way. Plus, in our segment, one quick thing before I go, I'm going to talk a little bit about the new I Know What You Did Last Summer TV show and the role of nostalgia in our legacy horror properties. But first, we must bring in our co-host for the episode. He is a comedian. He is the host of Maximum Film here on the Maximum Fun Network. Ifiwadiway, welcome aboard. Is there anything else that you would like to put in that bio there that I did not get to? No, no, that that was uh, that was perfect. I think I think it gives it, it covers the scope. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm thoroughly covered. I mentioned 2015's Dope, directed and written by Rick Famuyiwa. So mm-hmm. that is that's the broader setup. What is the specific setup? What character within Dope? Are we talking about here today, Ify? Oh, man. Well, we're talking about Malcolm Adekanbi, uh, you know, just a high school geek growing up in Inglewood, California. Uh, let me let me get even more specific. A Nigerian-American high school geek growing up in Inglewood, California. If you if it, I think it's already explained in that description <laughs> why this is the person I chose. Um, right. And uh, Rick. Uh, uh, Fumiyiwa, he grew up in LA too. He grew up in Inglewood. I grew mm-hmm. up in Compton. Compton's very close to Inglewood. Um, so like it, like it truly, it's funny because when you first asked me, there were a bunch of characters I was going to use. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these characters weren't even going to be black. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, but I'm glad I thought hard on it because seeing Malcolm in this movie is, like it truly was like the definition of being seen for uh-huh. me because uh-huh. because there's the there is seeing yourself in a character mm-hmm. and it, it is seeing yourself on screen and that's the huge difference and the extreme difference when you're a comedian writer mm. is being angry because you're like wait <laughs> that is this is so good and I can't tell this story even though my version would be completely different right. I it was this thing of like damn this is such a good story why didn't I write this Yeah, I feel like I'm going too into the weeds before we get to the meat of it. No, not at all. And I'm just going to make sure that I don't take us further into it before I say, uh, let's tell the folks at home what Dope is about. What is the story of Dope? Yeah, so the story is about Malcolm and his best friends, Jiggy and Diggy, who are this group of like geeks at their high school. Malcolm, Jib and Diggy don't play sports and they aren't in a gang. They're always getting ridiculed by their peers because they're into white shit. Like skateboards, manga comics, Donald Glover, and for listening to white shit like trash talk, TV on the radio, and for doing white shit like getting good grades and applying to college. Uh, truly, to kind of illustrate this, they are in this like pop punk band in Inglewood, California, in the and and this is like the like mid to early aughts at the time, and they're into like '90s hip hop style and fashion.
but definitely walking around. They look different. They're treated different. They're known as just the, these like dorks at the school. Yes. Um, but basically, there's this uh, drug dealer, Dom, played by ASAP Rocky. Uh, an, a, an amazing performance, I have to say. It is an uh, excellent yeah. performance. He, he sends him over to invite this girl, Nakia, uh, to his party. It's a nice little piece over there. I want you to go up to her, tell her that Don wants to talk to her. Uh, that, that's, that's it? Yeah, nigga, can you handle that? When upon meeting her, Malcolm realized he kind of has a crush on her too. So immediately there's a love triangle popping off. Yeah. She, she kind of like. Nikia, a she- beguiling around the way girl played by Zoe Kravitz. You gonna say something or just stare at me? Um, Dom says that he would like you to come over and talk to him. Well, why don't you tell Dom that if he wants to talk to me, he can come over here and be a fucking man and not send a little kid to talk for him. Tell him just like that. Nakia is like this very specific type of girl. Like mm-hmm. she, it is what I have just, I, I recently like was rewatching this for another idea. So this is like, this movie's fresh on my mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, when I saw it, I was like, yeah, yeah, this is the black version of the manic pixie dream girl. Like you're very <laughs> weird offbeat black girl with natural hair who, uh-huh. who lives by her own rules. Like yeah. definitely got that vibe from like, Zazie beats in like nine days. Like that mm-hmm. is a like it is a uh like that is the black version of the Manic <laughs> Pixie Dream Girl. And what better movie for her to appear in? So yeah, they go to the party and it's a classic bag mix up because they end up getting <laughs> busted by the cops. Uh Malcolm the next day realizes that there are a bunch of drugs in his bag. <laughs> Yo, how'd you get this shit? No fucking clue, Jim. No fucking clue. What do you mean you don't have a fucking clue? I have no fucking clue where that gun came from or the drugs. It leads to a long kind of like series of events outside of school that he finally goes. He he gets in touch with Dom. Dom tells him to meet up with this uh, this guy, AJ. And that when he meets up with AJ, he finds out that this guy is the same guy because mm-hmm. he's, he's a senior and he's trying to get his uh, recommendation to go to Harvard. And it's the same guy he was supposed to meet up with. And it turns out that this guy, who was a quote unquote business owner, is also a drug dealer and is now basically uh, said that in order to get this recommendation, he needs to sell these drugs. If you're able to do this, it shows me more about you than any interview ever could. And I would then make it my business to make you a man of harm. And and that sets the hero off, heroes (laughs) off on their path. Shamik, who is just so, I I mean, he's, we're here to talk about him for you. From where I'm sitting, Shamik so fully is Malcolm in this movie. It's, I have a hard time delineating that Shamik was a real person after I saw this because Malcolm was so real and full. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, all of, uh, you know. Just before I just dive even deeper into this, I will say, yeah, I, that was kind of what I was hitting on when I rewatched it. I was like, this is a movie that it, I feel like if it came out within the past two years mm-hmm. would have gotten way more burn than it did now. I feel like especially mm-hmm. to it's like what I like to call um, part of the pre Moonlight era where mm-hmm. like I feel like Moonlight truly did cause a an interesting thing that shook up movies mm-hmm. like it created this like, oh, 
moment for, I think, white moviegoers to check yeah. out black movies. I think yeah. up until Moonlight, people would see a black movie and would discount it as like a black movie. A black and that movie. Is, yeah. Whereas like now we're in a time where like people are, you know, talking about girls trip and how they want to see it just as much as anything, because I think it took the Moonlight art housey style to be mm-hmm. like yes just because the cast is mostly black doesn't mean it's any different it it seems silly and some people would probably try and argue me uh, argue <laughs> against me on there but it, i mean you could just simply look at the numbers and just prove that moonlight had an effect on what the general movie going audience did for, uh, you know to see movies and mm-hmm. i think of this the same way i think of um uh, Tales from the Hood. Mm-hmm. Like, it's this movie called Dope about these kids in the hood, a coming of age. I could see how immediately m- mass majorities of white moviegoers would be like, oh, this will be a, like another kind of like black thing for black people. Right, right. Versus like this, like, no, extremely art housey, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> movie that, that, you know, took over Sundance the one year that you went. It's the funny. The one year that I went. And this was, I don't remember if it ended up being the top, bu- the top buy out of the festival that year, mm-hmm. or if it ended up being me and Earl and the Dying Girl. Uh. <laughs> but it was, it was either Dope or me and Earl and the Dying Girl that was the top sale out of Sundance that year. I mean, there wow. was a rush to get this movie. And I think, like what you were saying, the compart, like the way that Moonlight and, and I think in conjunctions, like you have Get Out in the genre space and then you have Moonlight in the, in the, like everything else cinema, like art house, prestige, dramatic space that's awakening white viewers to something that's been there all along, which is black filmmakers making wonderful cinema that is for everybody's enjoyment, mm-hmm. not just black audiences. I would imagine this was. The first time a lot of people had heard, the, a lot of white folks had heard the name Rick Famuyiwa, despite the mm-hmm. fact that, like, The Wood and Brown Sugar mm-hmm. are classic films. Like, they are classic films of their of their subgenres that they're in. So, like, this is, we're always, always ten steps behind, we are. Yeah. Always ten steps behind. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and it, you know, there's multiple systemic uh, things at play for for th- things like this, like marketing and how it's marketed and who mm-hmm. it's marketed to. Mm-hmm. So there's also those, but, you know, that's worth noting. But to jump into what I really like about it is everything about this movie really does a really good job of speaking into the experience of what it's like to grow up in these spaces as kind of like a dorky, nerdy person. Because, you know, one of the main things I heard after leaving Compton, because I lived in Compton till about the 10th grade, but I went to school in Compton till about 8th grade. 8th grade, I started going to school in a neighboring uh, city called Downey, uh, Mm -hmm. which was more like, like to me, I saw it as predominantly white, but it mm-hmm. was like predominantly uh, Mexican. Mm-hmm. Um, but like it was the first time I was like meeting white people in mass. Yeah. Uh, but it would always be like, oh, you grew up in Compton. How was it there? How would you survive? Like there's yeah. this like boys from the hood esque view of Compton. Completely. And like it's not to say that there w- there wasn't like the crime and everything going on but it kind of was like you know if you stayed in your lane you were pretty good mm-hmm. but but if you were in the school like it was kind of like Malcolm was describing where it's like you know you can get pushed around you can be a dork but like if something is extremely heated it can lead to a loss of life mm-hmm. but that was kind of how it went i think also what i really liked about this movie was a lot of movies can look at drug dealing as this like, okay, you're on the dark side now, <laughs> yeah. this, you know, and you're screwed. And really it's like, like that for a lot of people wasn't even 
the the crime of it it's just the only way they knew to make money for yeah. one reason or another so like them him treating it as this challenge and being successful at mm-hmm. it and then using it to come around on the drug dealer because you know you 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 have to you know still do the say no to drugs type <laughs> yeah. ending but yeah. never once did it make him look scummy like it Mm -hmm. was just like he was using his brains to do this thing and he uses it to come out on top so i think all of that was really made me come out this movie being like that's an experience that i i relate to i remember that is a world that i feel that i lived in and Mm -hmm. i've been reading a lot of um James Baldwin uh mm. and um and he and he does a lot of dunking on the black actors of his time cuz he's like that's not the that's not the America I know this mm-hmm. this grinning smiling tap dancing he was like he was like so I almost resented it. and and it's less of him at the time it was the people he saw growing up when mm-hmm. he was watch mm-hmm. films mm-hmm. and and like so it kind of like is like I get that feeling where it's like, oh, this is like the America. This is the Los Angeles I know, not mm-hmm. this like, you know, not, not this friends take on New York where like <laughs> yeah. it's only white people in this like heavily diverse city. It's like <laughs> them, even like, you know, something that I feel like if the TikTok kids found it now and would be really riled up about it but having like tony revelori using the n-word like that is how it is like if you if you no matter like if you were black and your friend was mexican Mm -hmm. y'all would use the n-word just the same because y'all are just uh, from that life you know Mm -hmm. and i well then there is that scene where diggy is not letting is yeah. not letting the, the, white the, guy the white guy get away with saying mm-hmm. that as like a term of endearment, a colloquialism. Yeah, We're yeah. all just a part of a shared culture. And she keeps slapping the shit out of him every time he does it. After that, they all hit it off. Though he never used that word in front of them again. And there's a delineation between him and Tony's character in, yeah. in, in Jib in that sense. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, I'm going to ask Iffy about that Iffy moment where he was watching Malcolm in the movie and it clicked with him that he was maybe seeing a little bit of himself staring back at him from the screen. Look, it's a rough world out there, especially lately. I get it. So let's take care of our minds as best we can. I'm John Moe, host of Depression Mode with John Moe. Every week, I talk with comedians, actors, writers, musicians, doctors, therapists, and everyday folks about the obstacles that our world and our brains throw in front of us. Depression, anxiety, traumatic stress, all those mental health challenges that are way more common and more treatable than you might think. The first time I went to therapy, I was so ashamed, and I was like, can't believe I gotta go into therapy. Like, I thought I could be a man, and Humphrey Bogart was never in therapy. And then my dad said, yeah, but he smoked a carton of cigarettes a day. Give your mind a break, give yourself a break, and join me for Depression Mode with John Moe. All right, welcome back to Feeling Seen, the podcast where we talk about the movies that make us feel seen. We are here with Iffy Wadiway, and we are about to talk about that iffy moment with the character of Malcolm in Dope. Where was there like a, a, a click over point where you were like, oh, I'm, I'm all in for this character? Oh, man, it's so funny because it was very, very early. Like it wasn't, <laughs> it didn't even take like much of the movie for me to have that click because I think him being Nigerian American in the hood, I was already like, 
salted, you know, kind of like yeah. locked in. But then the moment when you see the band playing, I yeah. was like, all Rio, all Rio, uh, yeah. yeah, which is uh, which is just Pharrell. Uh, that, that yeah. is because I was because I really liked the song. And I was like, let me look up this band, like this fake band, and it's just Pharrell doing yeah, it. Yeah, it's and, just Pharrell and their jams. Yeah. Him playing in that band that was like so against like what the school was about really connected with me because like I always was into like hardcore metal mm-hmm. along with rap, you know, but like it was like being so into um like this thing that went like against especially at the time, especially if we're talking about like late 90s early aughts like it was like black people don't listen to rock music black people don't you know yeah so seeing him do that and have this band that's when i was like oh this is me (laughs) this Mm -hmm. kid is me this is this kid is me if my dad gave me a little more freedom to start a band or have (laughs) a flat top like i'm (laughs) you know well, yeah, he's and, and as we as we meet them walking through the school sort of at the start of the film and we're getting a sort of lay of the land where they sit within like the social ecosystem of their environment like they uh, Malcolm is narrating for us and, and and or no Forrest Whitaker is narrating for us producer Forrest Whitaker talking about how like Diggy and and Jib and Malcolm get a lot of get a lot of trash from people because they're into what is considered white shit and the idea that there is this delineation between what they can like and what they should like and how that sort of informs the narr- the arc of the plot where Malcolm wants to go to Harvard and, but as, you know, his, his counselor tells him, like, you're a kid from, you know, Inglewood, like, who are you? Like, do you, like, what do you think you're going to do getting into Harvard? And yeah. so, you know, I was wondering if that sort of that, like, laying out of, like, that aspect of the white shit, like, if that factored into sort of, like, the cultural clash that you had with the environment around your expectations. Well, it was so funny because that's where it kind of really becomes you and then mm-hmm. you morph it into your version of what that character is going through, which yeah. is like, you know, yeah, he he's kind of going against this idea that, like, you know, People don't make it out the hood and like if you do, you need it. But like it's this idea of like how how he's supposed to find success. How is he supposed to make it out? There's just this whole kind of sub story of like people giving him advice on what he should do for his life. Mm -hmm. What is his path and him kind of being almost like annoyed where you know and and i kind of felt that in the sense that i felt that you know growing up where it's like you know my dad you know immigrant he thought i should be a writer uh not a writer he definitely did not uh (laughs) he thought i should be a lawyer or like wow that's generous of him (laughs) yeah a lawyer or a doctor yeah i wanted to do art he like panned that he said get into computer science and he pushed me to the point where when i turned 18 i kind of like just fucked around until Mm -hmm. i realized that i could take control and do what I want and then eventually found comedy and you know the story is from there so like I kind of like liked witnessing that of him mm-hmm. just finding you know his his way I wanted to follow up on you know us talking about you high school creative type 
we have in Malcolm a character who maybe, maybe wants to walk the path that maybe your parents had more uh, imagined for you. Like, why don't you apply to Harvard, Iffy? Like, why don't you, why don't you go and have a, like, a thriving career as a political scientist in an Ivy League school, doctor, lawyer? Um, but instead, you you wanted to pursue a creative path. So I wanted to hear about sort of how that comedy path played for you. Like you said, there was a sort of like fuck around period after high school where like there had been a lot of push on you. So it seems like you kind of push back by sort of pulling away for a bit. But how did that how did that continue on to put you where you are now? Um, yeah, so it, it was it was kind of like a long way of realizing it because there, there was this moment, right, where you, you kind of have your dream shut down. And this is it's, – it's great for me to answer this now because <laughs> I, I truly would have a, like these periods in my life wondering what happened because it was pretty much because I had my heart set on being an artist, going mm-hmm. to art school. And mm-hmm. when I presented, you know, that's where all – all the research a kid would do, right, yeah. of like where they, what they're going to do after high school. I dumped all that into art stuff art school mm-hmm. what are those paths what how do you get so when my dad panned that i didn't have a backup plan because right. all that time i was doing no research on actual <laughs> yeah. four-year colleges because i was like so sure like art is my passion art is what i'm gonna do i'm gonna go to art school it makes no winners sense. don't have a plan b you yeah. only had a plan a yeah so without that i kind of like went to community college and here's the thing is if you go to community college and you still don't have a plan, you're just going to be just taking classes and you're just <laughs> yeah. going to also be yeah. pulling out of those classes. I was racking up W's and this time it wasn't a win. Uh, it, was, it was the W's <laughs> get for incomplete. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just left and right. And so my dad got mad and he was like, well, if you're just going to not even go to your classes, I'm not going to pay for your community college. So I had to pay for it out of my pocket. So then I was still getting W's, but I was paying for it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And I kind of was doing this thing and then I kind of started doing improv with the advisor for my like comedy sports team. Mm-hmm. And an important thing to note in all this is I also started working for the county. My dad got me a job for the county. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. He, he told me to apply. I was working in the same building as him because he looked at it as like, well, this kid's not going to school. He's not going to college. <laughs> yeah. I might as well get him a good job. Yeah. That was, it was kind of his last resort. And I also like slowly started picking up on that and kind of resented mm. him for that. Mm, okay. So, so it's all this. So imagine all this resentment, this angst and these like early twenties, like kind of like sass that you're building yeah. up. And I started dating someone and she was in a black box theater production of Little Shop. And oh. it was kind of like having um, kind of like that usual suspects moment where it all hit me. Uh, uh, OK, then, you see you yeah. see it all playing out in slow yeah, motion and I was like, before oh, your yeah, eyes. I, this is what I want to do. This is what I because at the time I was just like working nine to five, taking like a class or two at night mm-hmm. uh, and then also doing improv on the weekends. Like it was all very like, you know, just cyclical. I was just yeah. doing the same thing. And when I saw this was like oh this is what i wanted to do and at the same time my buddy matt tells me to listen to the donald glover episode of wtf and then then, you know because i thought like i've reached the peak of improv at that time because Uh i was like in my opinion the funniest guy doing improv uh, the funniest black guy doing improv at the oc you know (laughs) Uh, funniest guy but definitely funniest black guy um (laughs) 
And when I heard like Donald Glover be like, well, you know, uh, there's not that many black people here. And he starts naming people and like half expecting to hear my name, even though he has no way of knowing me. But like right. in my, you know, my ego is like, it'd be, it'd be crazy if he said my name, you know, maybe yeah, like crazy. Your legend if is building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like my waves made it down and I didn't <laughs> hear it. And so mm-hmm. I just like that changed everything. That moment changed. I sign up for UCB classes. Oh, I wow. start, you know, auditioning. I'm like calling in sick from a full time job <laughs> to go to auditions for a college humor video. You know, like, <laughs> like it's so funny because I do stuff with college humor now. So it's crazy to think that like I was like calling off a full-time job to go to some <laughs> studio on the west side to audition for a sketch, a sketch. Uh, which that would have gave me like a maybe a couple bucks versus like this salary i had <laughs> um, but like i get all in and then i finally get to the point and this is great I, the reason i like this uh, story is because this is a great way for me to be able to name drop how i exactly i know timothy chalamet um <laughs> Uh, but I hit this point where like I've called off for audition so many times that I've, I've been suspended. I've since been suspended. And it was so funny because when I got suspended, I was like, perfect. I'm going to just be going on nonstop auditions. And of course I don't get a single audition the week I'm suspended. But so now they're like, yo, you cannot take off any time. Like you Mm -hmm. can't, you, we, or you'll be at risk of being fired. And two things come up. UCB has the Del Close Marathon in New York, in which oh, I'd yeah. need to be in New York for a week. Mm-hmm. And then I book a short film called Spinners uh, opposite this guy who goes by the name of Timothy Chalamet. Some, ah, yes. some weird kid who I, I'm like, <laughs> okay. Um, and that would be a week. So I need two weeks off mm. and I can't take no time off. Yep. I have no accrued time anymore. Shit. So I realize that this was the moment I had to quit my full-time job and do it. And so my, what also sucked about this job too, is that because my dad worked there, he was like the auditor for the building. That's right. This whole time, this is the job your dad got you because he works at the same place. Yeah, Uh, And which sucked because if they had a problem with me, instead of like bringing me into a meeting or something, they'll just like call my dad and then my dad (laughs) would like yell at me. Um, So I, when I quit, I was like, I need to go up stairs and tell him because they're gonna as soon as i tell them i quit they're definitely gonna tell him so like (laughs) i quit i leave the office and go upstairs into my dad's office and then i told him that i quit and he i could tell he was ready to like lose it but he was at work (laughs) he was at work and he's in his office oh thank god so he like he's like oh is that what you want to do, huh? This is funny. I was like, yeah. And so it, so it's this like silent thing. And I go, and then my mom, uh, you know, she, she was in the hospital at the time. Oh. So then we, uh, we we're at the hospital with my mom. And then it, it was all fine. We were like focused on our mom, like good uh-huh. people. And then all yeah. of a sudden my dad goes, has your son told you what he wants to do? Uh, <laughs> and I was like. What I want to do, what I'm going to do, what I I'm put in the two do. weeks, I quit. <laughs> like, as, And we get into this huge argument. We start shouting at each in other the in, in the hospital with my mom right. in the bed, just like, ah, and we were just like <laughs> yelling at each other. He was not happy. And we like go at it. And then my mom yells at me and says that I can't yell at my dad. Um, he and, started it. Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> 
And so then we, um, and then I just kind of set off and I remember he was, he was a bit miffed mm-hmm. and then he would like slowly, like every now and then, like mm-hmm. I, he'd call and check in and be like, you know, how's it going? You know, mm-hmm. it's, oh, you know, he just, cause he's still in like dad mode, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and eventually like now I, I basically make my living, you know, doing this. He, <laughs> very, he, he tells everyone how he told me to follow my dreams. <laughs> You lying uh, ass. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. He was like, you know, I always told him he needs to follow his dreams. You know, he always wanted to act. I was like, I swear. <laughs> do you call him out for that or do you you let him have that Yeah, thing? I let him have it, but I look at him the whole time. I stare daggers at him. You're like, yeah, father of the year. Yeah, father yeah, of the thank, year. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for always having my back. <laughs> Tell you were the one. Yeah. There was no friction with me going down this path. All right. Well, I think this is a good moment for us to take another break. But when we come back, I am going to ask Ify to do a little fanfic writing about our hero, Malcolm. From the internationally acclaimed creators of Who Shot Ya comes the movie podcast, Maximum Film, starring producer and film festival programmer Drea Clark as a woman bound by passion. I saw this eight months ago on the festival circuit, and I loved it. Film critic Alonzo Duralde as a man corrupted by greed. Why watch one Hallmark Christmas movie when I can watch seven? And comedian Ifiwadiwe as a man protecting a love that society simply won't accept. I think Pacific Rim is a perfect movie. And if you can't accept that, then I want you out of my life. From the makers of the movie podcast, Who Shot Ya? comes Maximum Film. That's right. We changed the name of our show to Maximum Film. But don't worry. We're still a movie review show that isn't just a bunch of straight white dudes. So tune in to Maximum Film at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Feeling Scene podcast here with Ify Wadiwe talking about Malcolm in the movie Dope and a thing that I want to a thing that I want to make sure that I'm very mindful of within the architecture of, of the conversations that I have here is that for many people that I wish to speak to about this because of the dearth of array of of creators and faces we've allowed on screen in mainstream Hollywood for the majority of its existence. Like you said, you had considered characters initially that were like non-black characters. And I, you know, and then there's Rick Famuyiwa. I I got to interview him when this came out and and did a piece for him when I was, a piece about him when I was working at Wired. And he talked about like, he wanted to make a movie like this because he's a big John Hughes fan and he saw himself as Ferris Bueller and yeah. he wanted to and he he really like recognized himself in like the breakfast club mm-hmm. and but he obviously like didn't have analogs really at the time be like outside of the Hughes verse to be that he didn't have his own dope yeah and so I wanted to hear from you about like you know that process of grafting that that so many people have to do you know, Dope comes out in 2015. I don't think you're a 20-year-old man. Like, I don't think yeah. you saw this. Not that you don't look just spring chicken, spry as the day, you know, <laughs> you were running around in high school. But, like, this comes, you know, at later in life for you than maybe the first time you saw a Ferris Bueller's Day Off yeah. movie. And I wanted to hear from you about, like, that process of of sort of projecting an avatar where we don't have one until like later in life when we're adults and suddenly there's more representative aspects of us on screen. 
Yeah, it's it's very interesting because, you know, I was thinking about this moment I had in high school uh, before coming on here because I knew we'd be talking about stuff like this. Mm-hmm. And I think the first thing is is that you don't even notice it at first mm-hmm. because if you think about it, as soon as you're born from the moment you start, you know, ingesting media and really starting relating to it, it's primarily white media. Yeah. So you're kind of forced to do it as you first learn to take in media, you know, mm-hmm. something uh, that, you know, as a, as a father and an adult now, I've noticed like, you know, only places like Sesame Street really breaks that out. Sesame mm-hmm, Street has mm-hmm. always been like heavily diverse and have shown you. But outside of that, you know, we didn't have Doc McStuffins growing up, <laughs> which was like a black, you know, child who is a doctor. And mm-hmm. we didn't have all these, you know, different. It was very much like these white-led children's shows to white-led cartoons to white-led, you know, teen shows. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just saying all this and I'm kind of like working through this to say that, you know, in high school, you know, that the just just to date myself so you can know where I stand. <laughs> um, in high school, the biggest show out was Arrested Development. Uh-huh. And, you know, the fun thing about ensemble comedies are everyone wants to say who is who in the ensemble comedy. Right. Like, oh, yeah. this and that. And I remember we were, it was all, is with the improv kids that at my school, I was in comedy sports improv league and everyone was like, oh, so-and-so is such a buster. Right. So-and-so is like a job. So-and-so. And I remember being like, oh, which one, is, which one am I? And they, <laughs> and they all stop and they think and they go, well, there's no black characters in Arrested Development. Uh, and I was okay. like, one, yeah, that's true. Damn. <laughs> Two, yeah. 70%, 60% of y'all are Mexican. Like, like, <laughs> like, like y'all, y'all ain't You're white. You're no Jessica yeah, yeah. Walter, guys. Yeah, yeah. You know, none of, they, ain't, they ain't no Mexican characters either. But y'all, <laughs> you know, and it's funny because this is definitely something I only realized thinking back on it for today's episode. <laughs> But back then, I just kind of was like, hmm, damn, you're right. And mm-hmm. I just – but I also even remember in the moment being like, yeah, that doesn't matter. It's We're talking about personality types. Right. Y'all don't look like the people. It was it – was, but it but it just is how people were, you know, ingesting media. So it mm-hmm. is kind of interesting Um, just kind of like that was the first time I realized like, oh, maybe there should be more, you know, representation right. – in media, because like I'm trying to talk about you know a a thing I like mm-hmm. and, and and try and be a part of it, and there's no room because they have not a single black person on right. the cast. And now and now I will get to the I will get to the promised lead in to the fan fiction aspect of this. The way we like to close down the conversation here is to have you sort of speculate, perhaps about like. Where, what is the after dope life of Malcolm? Where do you think he went? Did he, did it become Harvard? Did he stay? What did he end up doing with all of the skills and, and charm that we know of him? Well, you know, what, what I imagine is, uh, is that one, or not even imagine, we know this to be true. (laughs) Harvard is expensive. Harvard is expensive. He goes to the school and, you know, his parents are on tough times. He still mm-hmm. keeps in touch with, you know, Diggy and company. They're, they're starting to upload stuff to SoundCloud. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and he takes a very like, you know, he takes a very risky 
thing of putting his his like financial aid money into a recording session okay. for the band uh that just seems to screw them over they don't hear back from the person they don't get a tape of the record and it yep. turns out that the person didn't really work for a record company so now the money that was supposed to go towards his tuition isn't there and he has to get it paid by a deadline or he'll be kicked out of harvard yep yep so what does he do he calls in a favor to none other than AJ from the previous movie, who is like, oh, I'll be, I'll be damned. And he's like, look, man, you, you probably need to move drugs. <laughs> I need this money. Yeah. What if I do it? And uh, and in this new version, he definitely wants to um, to 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 get him back some way. So he's like he's like trying to keep these different elements in play. Yes. that says that he's the the person who like like that basically attaches Malcolm to the drug deals. Like he wants to make he's trying to be smart about it this time <laughs> around. He's like I can't I can't uh, I can't be fucked again. Right? So, yeah, he's not going to underestimate Malcolm a second time. And it kind of like leads to a um, to a standoff between AJ and Malcolm again. Uh, that kind of seemingly like is a fake out to where like AJ kind of respects him, where he's right, like he's like right. I put all the odds against you, and you still got one over on me. And my son's a dumbass, so I and don't my really son's care. a dumbass. <laughs> kind of, kind of like you know reprising some of the elements of the last one, like the mm-hmm. kind of gun standoff with the bully that actually yes. made the bully respect him. Um, another thing that I think is like true about that life mm. that. I think could very easily be looked at as like, why would you use a gun and all this stuff? But mm-hmm. it's like, no, that type of person that he pulled the gun on yeah. needed that. Cause now yeah. he's not going to take it personally. He's going to be like, I respect you because you stood up to me. And it, yeah. it's, it seems weird, but it makes sense if you know. <laughs> no, I think that, I, I think that's a, cause it, I, you know, like what you were saying, like if this movie had just come a couple years later, it feels like it would have jumped off much more oh, yeah. fervently. And I, I, I did a panel a couple I did a panel a year ago about like, you know, future theme, you know, future of horror is female, that kind of thing. And the wonderful filmmaker Nikki Jujusu was a part of it. And and we talked about like, you know, what is the difference that you see between like, the rhetoric and the, the the actual change that is like allegedly happening in the industry? And she said that a thing that is as true as it ever was for her is that blackness is still defined in opposition to whiteness that it cannot just be on it it cannot just exist on its own she's like you know it's like white executives just can't help themselves like they they have to see themselves somewhere in the story to understand that it's a valid story whether it's even she's like people she was like black, white people would rather see themselves be a bad guy than not see themselves she's like it's just they they have to be there somewhere <laughs> and like, I, I need a spot in the yeah, movie i gotta yeah, see myself where so, am i hundred percent. And I'll even go furthermore and go into my James Baldwin bag, which ah. it's so funny because I, it's it's so as as someone who's like, you know, the host of Maximum Film into mm-hmm. movies and like really like trying to ingest James Baldwin. It really is interesting how much he implements like cinema into mm-hmm. his description. Mm. And it's because it, his kind of like reasoning for it is that he sees cinema uh, w- as a reflection of the time. Like he mm. sees it as a reflection of what people believe. And he often argues that like th- the things that white people can do in movies to be seen as a hero is never the same for people of color. Okay, like yeah. he's, they're like, 
as as a person of color, you can never get vengeance in a movie. Mm-hmm. Vengeance is bad. You ha- you always have to like let it go. And he mm-hmm. references mm-hmm. one movie I forget where like it's something about getting on the train and he gets off the train because he forgave this person. It's right. like okay. that's that's always the move. But John Wayne can always unleash his vince- vengeance on as many people as he wants. White mm-hmm. heroes they get to unleash their vengeance because when white heroes unleash vengeance that's justice right Uh, and so i think that's the same thing where it's like if this was like a you know white coming of age film and he stands Mm -hmm. up to this like gangster wannabe and he pulls the gun out to like protect someone or to protect Mm -hmm. himself like it would be seen as this deep moving thing but like if you look at the still frame of malcolm doing it Mm -hmm. it seems like a a, a like a like a criminal act you mm-hmm. know there there is this like realness to it that i think um makes sense and and i think i don't have to unlearn the idea that like the forgiveness that mm-hmm. you know uh that people of color always have to have in films Thank you so much for for talking about that and for talking about your journey into James Baldwin with us here. I am so glad we could bring a conversation (laughs) about James Baldwin to a conversation about dope. And I feel like Rick Famuyiwa would say great. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, We we didn't get Rick Famuyiwa as the Flash and I'm forever pissed off about that. Uh, But that's just a side note. Um, But yeah, we've 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 done our we've done our fan fictioning. That's that's kind of our tail. That's kind of our tail end of the pod. And then into that. We come in to our farewells and me asking you if there's anything you want to let people know about, turn people on to something that you're doing, maybe. Oh, man. Oh, well, you know, definitely uh, check out Maximum Film uh, for any like shows and, and stand up that you might want to see me uh, doing. If you way on Twitter and Instagram, that's where I'm usually promoting the live things I'm doing, and uh, you know. Check out my friend uh, Jordan's podcast. She has one about uh, movies, uh, you know, uh, uh, seeing yourself in a movie. Uh, you should check that out. It's pretty great. I, I'm i biased. I agree. And I thank you for saying so. Um, and thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about this today, Ify, and for, for just happen to bringing... Uh, a movie that I was so enraptured to get the chance to see when it first came out and I'm so happy to have revisited again. That was Ify Wadi Way. Please go check out Maximum Film. They're having a great time there always and Ify is moving the conversation along. He's keeping the rhythm in place. And now it is time for one quick thing before I go. And I want to talk to you about... I Know What You Did Last Summer TV show and the sort of horror nostalgia industrial complex. And I think this pairs hand in hand with the Chucky TV series that has come out. Now, I hear you. The I Know What You Did Last Summer TV show has not been widely critically acclaimed. But the Chucky TV series, meanwhile, is getting excellent reviews. And it's bringing in, from what we've seen, great ratings for the USA Network sci-fi channel cluster of platforms, you know, the way that multinational corporations have five channels that are the same thing. Anyway, the reason I'm thinking about these two things together is that despite their different levels of execution, I think they are both doing an excellent job with the construct of our horror nostalgia industry. Obviously, it's a big one. 
But so often when the super franchises in particular are trotted back out, it is truly a rehashing. But what I love about what the Chucky show and the Chucky property has always done is that it takes something you you feel the warm and fuzzies about for being a property that you maybe first experienced in the 80s uh, as an original Child's Play fan. Maybe you're a Gen Xer who that was a formative movie for, or maybe it was the 90s and you came into it as a millennial with Bride of Chucky like I did. And the amazing thing about the Child's Play franchise that the man, the myth, the legend, Don Mancini, who has been either the writer, the director, or both of every installment besides that Aubrey Plaza reboot that we don't need to talk about, he has captained the ship since 1988. And what these movies do, and now the show, is say, yes, you love this thing, but we don't want to act like it's 1988 all over again, and we don't want to reserve you the same cold product. The reason Chucky is the top line, number one, super killer franchise Better than better than TCM, better than Nightmare, better than Friday the 13th is because the Chucky franchise has grown with time. The Chucky franchise has recognized that times change, that stories can change, that characters can change. In Seed of Chucky, the absolute batshit bonkers, incredible and ahead of its time installment of the franchise from the 2000s, we get a non-binary character who is the child of Tiffany and Chucky. And in the TV series, we have Chucky telling the main boy character of the show that he has a genderqueer child. And even though he's a killer, he's not a monster. Of course, Chucky loves his kid. I have a queer kid. You have a kid. Gender fluid. And you're, you're cool with it. I'm not a monster, Jake. I put this together with the I Know What You Did Last Summer show because I watched that show and I'm having so much fun. And I don't feel at all like it gives a damn about my nostalgia as a, yes, I'm 36, that makes me like a geriatric millennial. It doesn't seem to care about my geriatric millennial touch points for the property. This is like, we're going to adapt this Lois Duncan book, I Know What You Did Last Summer, that provides the foundational text for the franchise. We're not going to give you Ray. We're not going to give you Julie. We're not going to bring back Jennifer Love Hewitt and have her standing out in the street, spinning around, screaming, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for, huh? And that's so often what it feels like these properties do is that they just stuff so much iconography into one spot, so many Easter eggs, so many opportunities for you to point at the screen and go, I know that thing. But what Chucky says is, I refuse to only to give you the th- only to give you the things that you know. I want to give you things that will challenge you and force you to grow because I want this property to grow. God, I bet Don Mancini wants to grow and change this property over the years. Why would you want to sit with the same thing for decades? And thank God he has the boldness and the bravery to keep pushing it further and further evermore. And then, and I know what you did last summer, it puts it in Hawaii, brand new cast of kids. We don't see the slicker killer. There is no hook hand. And I feel amazing about a show based on a property I love being more targeted at a brand new audience than trying to rope in my eyeballs again. Give me something new. Make work for a new audience. Don't just keep giving me the same super killers and the same structures over and over again. Do something creative. That's the beauty of horror is that it is a genre of remix. So we have the chance to take these mythic Hall of Fame 
iconic properties, killers, characters, and seeing what they can be when run through the imaginations and personal filters of brand new filmmakers and brand new generations targeting brand new audiences. That's so exciting. What an amazing way to see the thing you love exist in your life, you know, with the way we do remakes, in perpetuity for the rest of our lives. So I really appreciate that even though these shows aren't equal in their quality, but I am so glad that they don't want me to just sit in 1988, that they don't want me to just sit in 1998. I would love to see if we're going to continue to bring back the baddies of old all the damn time, because we will. There's another Texas Chainsaw on the way. Take a chance. Take a swing. Do something different. Roll down the fucking gates, lower the barrier of entry to enjoying horror, tell the genre bros that they're not the only audience that matters, and serve up things that are more, yes, queer, that are more interesting, that are more crazy, that are more wild, that are more bananas, that are more pretty little liars if you want. Because that's the thrill of innovation in this genre. And I know what you did last summer, the TV show, and Chucky, the TV show, I think, for me, are hitting little home runs right now. And that's our show! You can follow us on Twitter at feeling scene pod or join our facebook group at www.facebook.com slash groups slash feeling scene pod you can also send us an email at feeling scene at maximumfun.org if you want to follow me i am your crew on twitter that's at j-o-r-c-r-u our theme music is by andrew epen our producer is casey o'brien and our senior producers are kevin ferguson and laura swisher this is a production of maximum fun MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture Artist owned Audience supported